0: I echo the sentiments of justice, and <clears throat> we do appreciate the gifts, they were very, very generous, so thank you um, so much. I haven't decided what I'm going to do with mine yet, but we'll, I will spend it wisely. Um, communion, David, yes, great job, you're just right at the five-minute mark, so <laughs> we'll keep you on the schedule for a couple months from now, you pass the test. We don't really call it the David Snyder you know, uh, rule. Maybe the Dan Benson <laughs> rule. <clears throat> yeah, some of you definitely see it more as a guideline than a rule. <laughs> no joke in there. <laughs> All right, let's get into the book of Colossians chapter 3. Starting in verse five, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God to us, and we thank you that we're privileged to be here, to sing your praises, um, to talk to one another about how amazing you are, to tell the unbelieving world how gracious you are and that you are a God that saves Lord, we want to be a people that hear from you and then listen and obey. And so we pray that would be true of us today. We pray, God, that you would continue your work in us. We pray that you would bless the churches in St. Charles County that are being faithful to you, that you would continue to prosper them and have them continue to be faithful to preach the word. We pray that for our state and our country as well, God, that the pulpits would continue uh, to be faithful, Lord, and you would continue to raise up men that can lead and lead boldly um, and courageously. Lord, we do pray for our nation. We pray you'd bring it to repentance uh, in the many areas that it is falling short. Um, you say that judgment begins with the household of God, and so may we make sure that that our own house, our own church is in order, Lord. Um, and then, God, we pray you'd be gracious uh, to this nation and, and have revival to come, true revival where lives are changed. As we look into your word today, God, um, open our eyes, um, clear away anything that is not of you, and um, remove anything from our lives. Bring it to our attention today, God, so that we might walk more in accordance with your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, There is a a French sociologist uh, that is somewhat well-known if you deal with religious studies topics, and his name is Emile Durkheim. And um, he is known for a few things, but one of the things he's uh, known for is bringing about the concept when you study religion of looking at the sacred versus the secular. And so he kind of brought that distinction to religion. And when I say religion, I'm not just talking Christianity. Um... My bachelor's degree was in religious studies, and so we just looked at religion from all different aspects and points of view. Mostly a huge waste of time, um, but I had to get a degree in something, and that's what I thought the Lord was calling me to do. Uh, So I got my degree in in, uh, religious studies. The Lord did use it because I learned many things about Hinduism and Buddhism and uh, Islam that I was able to, and still am able to, share when I talk to people of those uh, religious faiths. But we also just examined religion from so many different aspects, some of it just totally um, stupid, um, to be quite honest. And the thing that probably irked me the most was that um, my peers and my teachers, many of them unbelievers, basically like putting the concept of religion on a table and trying to examine religion and how people have religious beliefs and basically feeling superior to them. Um, because it was almost like, oh, we can understand why they believe certain things and why they do certain things and, and anyway. way. Um, but here's the thing, when we talk about um, this concept of the sacred versus the secular, in one sense there's truth to that, because if you think about the Old Testament, like there were certain things when it came to the temple and the tabernacle that were considered sacred. They had the sacred vessels, the sacred uh, utensils, and different things like that. Um, so there is that idea that there's a sacred versus the secular. But I think what happens if we're not careful is we, we consider that a complete dividing wall. And so people end up saying, you know, what happens out there has no bearing on what happens in here in the church. And then what happens here in the church has no bearing what happens out there. So it's like there's this sacred and secular divide. And that's where I think you can get completely off by seeing that divide because what happens in here I hope very much so, has huge bearing on what's going on out there. Why? Because we're the salt and the light, right? And what happens out there should very much have bearing on us because we're supposed to be the salt and the light. And so as whatever we see the culture floating amiss and going off course, like we're called to be there to help right that ship. We're supposed to be the salt and the light. So I think it's important um, for you to know as believers, how the culture tries to influence us. Do you think that's important? Yeah. And so the only way for, uh, for that to occur is for me to talk about it, whether it's in a life group or uh, a men's Bible study or from here at the pulpit. So I think certain things are important for you guys to realize that the, the culture is trying to weave a narrative. And so <clears throat> things like when you search uh, for the term pregnancy on Google, don't do it right now. <laughs> but if you just search that one word on Google, the first hit is Planned Parenthood. I think that's important for you guys to know things like that, to realize that, that even a search engine has an agenda. That is not by accident. So <clears throat> uh, one of the things they always... Um, emphasized to us um, at seminary, um, and I, I went to um, a good seminary, at the time it was good, um, <laughs> was that, that your sermon um, needs to make sure it's applicable to the people and the things that they're dealing with in the current situation, and I did appreciate that emphasis. Um, and they also emphasized, maybe to a lesser degree, that it should be timeless. So if you ever read a sermon from, let's say, 50 or 100 years ago, Um, maybe you've read a sermon from Charles Spurgeon, like that, those sermons, you can still be edified from, they can still feed you, that you can still um, be blessed by that. Why? Because God's word is timeless. And so what he's, what Spurgeon and other pastors are doing, if they're doing it properly, is they're exegeting God's word. They're saying, here's what the word says, um, and here's what it means. Then also, though, what you'll see sometimes is he might mention a certain, use some illustration, or have some application, and you're like, I have no clue what he's talking about. Why? Because he was speaking for his people at that time for a particular thing that was going on, that uh, 75 years later might not be something that we deal with, might be uh, something that was going on at the time that he felt like he he needed to address. But again, that sermon can be timeless if it's done properly, and the word is uh, exegeted accurately, and so that we can still be blessed from it today. Maybe some of the examples or things kind of go over our head or we're not sure about it. Um, But it is important for the pastor to take the word and then make the application. That is actually not a universal belief held by conservative Christians, sadly. Um, There's a philosophy by some that it is not the pastor's job to actually apply the message of the word. So, Um, they would see his role as just telling you what the text says, but then not taking it to the next text, or the next step and saying, here's how it applies to your life. Um, In fact, some seminaries uh, would argue for that approach. So he's supposed to merely expose the truth to the hearers, and then the Holy Spirit applies it to their lives. Well, I don't see it as an either or. You know, like, the Lord is using me, um, prayerfully, hopefully, by the Spirit to, to take the Word and the application that I'm telling you that it means, and then using it to wash you with His Word and apply it to your lives. So I would say that that is an unscriptural uh, philosophy. But that is why, at times, you go if you ever visit a different church, um, some churches won't address anything that's going on in the culture. You know? And sometimes you'll just hear a sermon, and it can be, I mean, it can be solid, legit, great, but no application. And I don't know about you, but um, I can be pretty dense uh, in my own head and, and pretty hard-hearted in my own heart at times. And so I can hear something great on, you know, an academic level or a couple levels you know, understanding what the word says, but then I need, you know, I need the, the hammer to be pounded a little bit harder on my heart and told how, how does it apply to me? And if you just think of some of the biblical examples that we have, <clears throat> you know, John the Baptist, you know, he, he called them a generation of vipers. I mean, he didn't, he didn't hold back. He wasn't like, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit lets them know that they're a generation of vipers. Uh, Jesus was pretty straightforward with the Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs. And the Apostle Paul, he didn't mince words when he called the Galatians, you foolish Galatians. Right? And then Isaiah 58, he's commanded to show my people in Israel their transgressions. Well, that's part of the application is being blunt and forthright with the word that's given and calling people to account for their sins and calling people to repentance. So the the tenor of Scripture, even when you look at it, um, is that God's word not merely to be understood or explained. It's supposed to be applied. And the thing for us, as we are looking at killing our sin is that we, we don't have two lives. Or maybe I should say we shouldn't have two lives. What we profess publicly is how we should act privately. Yeah. And here's the thing. We don't want to hide from the world. Listen, the world is fine. The world is fine if we are only Christians on Sunday mornings right here in this building. They're okay with that. And the world is fine if we're only Christians in our homes, for the most part. You know, what you do in your private time is up to you. But once, once we start to speak about it, once we start to even imagine bringing it into the public sphere, that, to them, is not acceptable. Why? Because the message we preach calls people to repentance. And people don't like to be told they're wrong. People don't like to be told that what they do is wicked. People don't like to be told that their deeds are wicked. People don't like to be told that they're sinners in need of a savior. And what's the result? Well, look in Colossians verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of, of these what? Of the things that we just read about the sexual immorality in verse 5, the impurity, the passion, the evil desire, the covetousness, and the idolatry, along with what we're going to read in verse 8, the anger, the wrath, the malice, the slander, and the obscene talk, on account of those things. So what do these people need? They need Jesus, right? They need Jesus. And what is our role, brothers and sisters, seeing that? We see a dying world, and what do they need? They need a cure. They need to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And so what is our role? Well, the Bible says that we are the ambassadors. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 5. It says in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Isn't that an amazing thing? That we're new creations? And who does that? I mean, it's all God, right? Because we're dead. So he makes the dead alive, he regenerates. Going on, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So notice what He does. He reconciles to us through uh, back to Himself through Christ, and then when He say, "What does He say?" Hey, I want to use you to do the same for others. That's what it's saying. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then there, here's his conclusion. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. And then here's his commentary on that. We're the ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. He makes his appeal through us. How does he do that? By us opening up our mouths and speaking the truth and witnessing to people and preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance. That's how he makes the appeal through us. Then he goes on, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what we see here on this passage is, you know, God is gracious to save us. Yes? yes exactly. He's very gracious to save us. Did, did he owe you that? No. no. He didn't owe any of us of that. Didn't owe us anything. Didn't owe us salvation. There is nothing that we could, any unbeliever on the day of judgment will not be able in any way to, to shake his finger at God and be like, oh, you should have. No, he shouldn't have. It's all from God, and it's all by his mercy and grace that whatever acts that he does, that's how he's acting. It is a very loving and gracious thing for him to do, to send his own son for us. So then what does he do? Well, we're blessed with that um, um, message that we receive, and we repent, and God redeems us, and he regenerates us, and he fills us with his spirit, and then what's the call for us to do? We take that message and tell others about it. Most people, probably the vast majority, I don't know what the percentages might be, but it's very high. Most people, guess what, got saved by hearing someone else. Now, maybe it was a book they read, but someone wrote the book. Maybe it was a video they watched, but someone made the video and spoke on the video. Maybe it was a sermon. Someone was speaking. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a Bible study. But words were being used by people that God gave the message of reconciliation to. Okay? Yes, is there, are, are there those stories, and we hear from them, the Gideons at times, right? The, the Bible is placed in the hotel, and someone comes and reads it, right? Even then, someone had to place the Bible there. But, but God, by and large, used this, the spoken word of us to spread the gospel. That's what we see over and over again. Your own testimony probably bears that out. So we're placed here on a, on a mission we're placed here on a mission. And listen, brothers and sisters, do you know how many times I heard the gospel before I responded in faith? Unfortunately, way too many times. Way too many times. But I heard it a lot. I was involved uh, in, a, in a, a WANA program. Some of your kids might be involved in it. Some of you might have been involved in it. Um, memorizing Bible verses. And not every week, but on a regular basis, uh, the leaders of the whatever age group I happened to be in would preach the gospel and talk about people raising their hands. And week after week, guess what? I didn't respond. Did they give up? Praise the Lord, they didn't. They kept giving the message. They kept giving the message. They kept giving the message. Um, and, and God was gracious. Guess what? I never responded to any of their, their messages. But I was hearing it. I was hearing it. Sadly, I was rejecting it, but I was hearing it, and it took took me going off to college uh, before I I finally uh, God was gracious enough to have me come to my senses. God was gracious enough to save me. Listen. Um, our church theme for this for this upcoming season for the next year is that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, and for us, I'm almost giving you like my conclusion in part. Um, to the sermon, but one, I want want us to be a church that is busy about the Lord's work, and so I have two challenges for us as a church over the next year. One is that I want each person to invite five people over the next year to church here. Now, for some of you, you can probably have that done by the end of next week, and for some of you, you've got like well, now you probably only have like 350 days or something, because it's been a couple of weeks since I talked about this at the members meeting. <clears throat> and you're going to wait till like day 349, okay? Because you're a procrastinator, and that, it might be challenging. You're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. But invite five people over the next year to this church. Think about that. Uh, there's roughly, I don't know, I'm kind of uh, shooting from the hip here, but there's probably about 80, 75 um, members in this church. I mean, let's just say there's 60. 60 members. And if we, we each invite five, that's 300 people invited. That's a lot. That's a lot. Are all 300 going to say, yes, we'll come? Probably not. But do you think some of those 300? Yeah. yeah. Uh, love, love people enough to, to invite them to your church. Love people enough. Second challenge is to share the gospel with at least three people. That's like one every 120 days. Every four months. Listen, brothers and sisters, that's like level one ambassador level, okay? That's just like level one. That's just like basic walk with Jesus Christianity. Is everyone supposed to share their faith? Yes. How many times a year? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Right? Yeah. And thank the Lord it doesn't. It might be good for some of us, but we'd turn it into legalism. What well, we're supposed to share is the idea, what? On a regular basis. On a regular basis. Um, three people a year is probably not even a regular basis. We're supposed to be doing that. So again, it's like level one ambassadorship. Are we called to evangelize? Yes. Acts eight: you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When? When you get saved, right? You're filled with the Spirit. And what does it say you'll be? My witnesses, right? In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Do you really think he was just talking to the 12 disciples right there? Like he's like, okay, don't write this down because it's really just for you. No. It's for us, it's for the church. He's speaking to the disciples as representatives of the church. It is for us. I was talking to a lady recently. You know, I do some power washing on the side and we had uh, finished washing her house, and um, she was sharing with me that uh, her husband had died in the, about a year ago, and that it had been uh, a really, really tough year. And so I was, I was like, um, you know, how, have, have you, do you have a good support group over this past year that's kind of helped you out? And she was like, yeah, I just kind of bike. And, and sure enough, when we got there, she, you know, she had the bike rack on the on the back of her SUV, and she's like, that's kind of like how I, I cope. And I'm like, you know, a good support group is, can be very helpful, and we would love to have you at our church. I said, my church uh, is probably one of the friendliest churches I know. Not that I'm biased or anything. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but I'm like, we would love to have you at our church, and you are totally invited to come. And, and, and he said, I go to Liberty Church, uh, I don't always tell people I'm a pastor because it actually it just becomes weird for them, and then and then it becomes weird for me. Um, and I just want them to see me as just like an average Joe, you know what I'm saying? Like just trying to love people. And so <clears throat> sometimes when I get opportunities, um, I, I'm praying as I get those opportunities. Like, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to share the gospel with this person? Am I supposed to invite them to church? I'm asking the Lord, what does he want? In that particular situation, I felt like he was like, hey, she needs to be, know that she can be cared for and loved, and that's important, and invite her to church. That's what I did, right? Um, unfortunately, it was, it was before I gave the challenge, so I don't even get to count that as one of my five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally teasing, I invite more than that to church. But, but people like that, like they need, they need community and fellowship, and they, they, yes, they need the gospel, and I, I don't, she doesn't go to church, so I don't, I don't know if she's saved or not. You can be saved and not go to church. It's kind of hard, kind of hard to grow, right? Uh, but um, she needs people to, to surround her and love her and care for her. True? Yeah. Whether she's a believer or not, she needs people to minister to her and love her and show that they care. And so um, that's what we do. We invite and we share. And listen, we're not responsible for whatever decision they make. True? Amen. So we, we invite, and if people, you know, say no, they say no. We give the gospel. If people reject, they reject. I'm thankful that those Awana leaders were, were faithful for many, many years to preach the gospel and for me to hear it, even though I rejected it. I'm very, very thankful. In hindsight, after I got saved, I mean, what would I be thinking? Like, I'm like, man, I went to this program where we're memorizing Bible verses for years and years and years and no one ever preached the gospel. That'd be kind of weird. So it's, yeah, and let's make it one step further. How how weird is it if, if you have people in your life and you're uh, uh, a Bible-believing uh, Christian and they don't ever hear the gospel from you? No, they should be hearing it. They should be seeing it but they need to be hearing it. Faith comes from hearing, Romans talks about. Well, one of the things we want to make sure we do if we're going to be ambassadors, we want to make sure we're good ambassadors. I'd say we actually want to make sure we're excellent ambassadors. God wants us to have excellence in everything. Look back at, at Colossians 3 because we're being told by God's Spirit further things that we must put away in our lives. The first is anger in verse 8. Now you must put them all away. Anger. The idea here, these first two words, anger and wrath, they kind of overlap in terms of their meaning. And although in certain contexts, um, uh, the idea with the word anger here is it denotes more or less a settled feeling of hatred, a settled feeling of hatred. The second word deals more with a tumultuous outburst of passion. What uh, most versions say is, is wrath. I think the NIV might say rage, but both, both work well. Look at Matthew 5 just briefly. most, the vast majority of the anger we have, and we're probably going to look at the Ephesians passage at some point, but the vast majority of anger that that people have is unrighteous anger. I was talking with someone the other day, and, uh, and their counselor was sharing with them that anger arises from unmet expectations. And so I was like, hmm, let me think about that for a moment. <clears throat> and I'm like, okay, so... I come home after work and the kitchen is a mess and my, I'm angry with my kids, right, for not doing what they're supposed to do. Why? Because I have an expectation that the dishes will be done when I come home. So there's an unmet expectation. Now sometimes the expectation actually can be, it could be a, a legitimate expectation. Like if, if you've, I've asked my kids to do something and they're not doing it, I mean it's legitimate for me to ask them to do certain things. <clears throat> I don't normally pick on my kids that much, so every 10 sermons or so. <clears throat> and they always do the dishes, so I'm, I'm picking something that is never a struggle for them. <clears throat> so, But sometimes we can have expectations of our kids, of our spouse, of our coworkers that probably are not legitimate. Um, but unmixed, I, But I thought that was at least helpful Like some, and I, because I started examining things in my life, like, well, hey, what kind of gets me angry, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I had an expectation, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's fair or not, and the expectation wasn't met. Then I get mad. But here, I mean, Jesus is saying, uh, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I I mean, anger is a serious thing. It's a serious thing that has to be dealt with. Jonathan Edwards, third president of Princeton, uh, America's greatest thinker, He had a daughter with uh, just an ungovernable temper. And a young man fell in love with his daughter and sought her hand in marriage. You can't have her, Jonathan Edwards said. But I love her, the young man replied. You can't have her, said Edwards. But she loves me, replied the young man. You can't have her. Why, asked the young man, because she is not worthy of you. But, he asked, she is a Christian, is she not? Yes, she is a Christian, but the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, though, for real, if you have an anger problem, guess what? Then you have a marriage problem. Because you bring that into marriage. And if you're married and have an anger problem, I mean, then you have that marriage problem. If you have an anger problem and you're going to get married, then you're going to bring that into your marriage. You have to deal with anger because it doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. So you need to repent of that anger. Seek help. Some people legitimately have like anger problems and it's deep seated. You need to let God Himself root that out, and you're probably going to need uh, someone to walk with you through that, and pray with you, and hold you accountable. But but God doesn't want you walking in anger. Yeah, if you ever meet angry people, they're not fun to to be around. They're just not. They don't they don't uh, have the the you know the, the spirit of God emanating from them in, in any way. It, it's of the flesh. It's of the devil. Look at Ephesians four. Ephesians 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Okay, so we see there that, I mean, it's possible to be angry, to have a a righteous anger. Again, I would say the vast majority of our anger is unrighteous, but it's possible. Okay, so be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Listen, anger says to the devil, come on in. So you're walking in anger, you're having an anger, you're just, it's like you're extending an invitation to the devil to come on in. You're extending him an, an invitation to get involved with that situation. Don't do it. Don't do it. Shut that door of anger quick. The next word is wrath. Again, very similar. It denotes a passionate outburst of anger. So the two are very similar. Uh, some, some versions translate it rage, some bad temper or quick temper. Listen, the manifestation of anger and rage in the Old, old, old Testament is primarily the right of the sovereign and holy God that we serve. Such behavior, when, when we start thinking that we, we have a right to be angry, we end up usurping the role that God has given us, and we're trying to take on divine rights. God talks about being angry in the Old Testament, and guess what? He can be. because He's holy and pure. A lot of times people want to, to separate the wrath from, from who God is, instead of understanding that it's an attribute of who He is. <clears throat> Our wrath is an unrighteous anger, but listen, when you look at God's wrath, it's actually linked to guess what attribute? His holiness. His holiness. So what does he, he get angry? Not, not when things don't go his way. Not when he doesn't get what he wants. He gets angry What when, when there's sin. When there's sin. And when, when the sin uh, you know, comes against him or comes against his people. So God's wrath is linked to his holiness. The word wrath... It's used like a curse word in some churches, like it's never spoken. But you can't really talk about God's holiness without talking about his wrath. So oftentimes what happens is is the wrath is viewed in terms of, of like the Greek gods, where it's a, you know, a capricious or it's a selfish anger. Um, the scriptural notion of God's wrath runs in quite the opposite direction. It depicts the necessary reaction. Listen to me. The necessary reaction of a personal God to any violation of his character or will. I'll say it again. So it's tied directly to his holiness, and it depicts the necessary reaction of a personal God to any violation of his character or will. Now think back in Colossians at the very beginning, in in verse 2 of chapter 1, I want you to see what it says. So look back in Colossians for a moment, chapter 1. Look what he says to them. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The saints, you could translate holy ones. So this warning about God's wrath is directed to God's holy ones. Now, here's the thing. God's true people are guaranteed deliverance from wrath. Amen? Amen. If you're a believer, do you have to fear the wrath to come? You don't. Why? Because the wrath won't be poured out upon you. So 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about it. Romans 5 talks about it. But why then are we repeatedly warned that persistent sinful behavior will bring God's wrath? Because guess what, brothers and sisters? He might actually be talking about you. And he's giving you a warning that if you walk in ways that are contrary to who God is, then you actually might not be one of his. So yes, he's talking to the holy ones, the entire church, but was it possible that within the church there were unholy ones? Yes. So when you hear the word, these these warnings and these pronouncements you need to search your own heart and make sure wow is this word for me what is what is it need how does it apply to me what is the lord trying to speak to to me regarding these things and not just discard it and be like oh i'm okay i'm okay no maybe the lord is trying to get your attention on something so these warning verses are designed to encourage god's people to engage seriously and passionately In the process of ridding ourselves of the attitudes and lifestyles characteristic of the world. In other words, kill your sin. Kill your sin. Wrath is such a powerful emotion and anger is such a powerful emotion that really only God can be trusted to exercise it fairly and righteously. That's why we're commanded Romans 12 verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to what? Yeah, I mean, that's what we would think, to God, but, it, but it, it, it says, leave it to the wrath of God. Yeah, that means we're leaving it to God, but it actually says we're leaving it to his wrath. Why? Because he knows how much to pour out on each person in the proper amount. I mean, if it was up to us, we'd we'd be like, you know, like a a fire hose, just just pouring it on everyone everywhere. But he knows how much. Vengeance is mine, it goes on to say. I will repay. And that's why it says in James 1, starting in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. Anger. Why? Well, he gives us the why. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I mean, James is saying, well, really, I'm saying what James is already saying. What? That that our anger, the vast majority of the time, is not from God. It's not a righteous anger, the vast majority. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, we must divest ourselves out of it. We must put it to death. We must kill our sin. Let's look at malice. Malice bespeaks a viciousness of mind, it's that malignant attitude which plans evil and rejoices when misery falls on the one it hates. Think of uh, Haman in the book of Esther. You know, the gallows are being built. He thinks they're being built for Mordecai, right? He's like, ah, oh, yeah. I'm going to see Mordecai hanging on them things. Little did he know he was building his own gallows, right? So it, it pleased him. He had malice in his heart. He wished ill will on Mordecai. And if you look at some of the uh, Greco-Roman literature, it often c- contrasts uh, virtue with with malice. It kind of contrasts them. So you have virtue on one side and then this idea of malice on the other. What about slander? Well, that's that's speech that tears down. It can be directed against God. It can be directed against people, but it tears people down. It speaks ill of them. It speaks um, uh, sinfully of them. Heard a lot of slander over the last few weeks about the Jews. A lot of anti Semitism. Hamas attacked Israel, Israel fights back, and we literally have people calling for the murder of Jews in the US. And there's protests and parades where they're chanting it. And, and, and uh, that's wrong. And let me be clear. It, I mean, it wouldn't matter what race or religion a group was. Calling for their murder and eradication is sinful and wrong. Regardless of who. We don't kill people for being a certain ethnicity. And we don't wish their death because they're a certain ethnicity. And we don't kill people for being a certain religion. So shame on those universities if you've heard the stories in those law schools where they're letting students... Be utterly foolish and stupid and proclaim such things. The American Jewish Committee um, said in just three weeks following the Hamas attack on Israel, France has registered twice the number of anti-Semitic acts compared to the entire year of 2022. 52 weeks compared to three weeks. Twice as many. And... This attack against Israel, instead of evoking sympathy, it's actually encouraged others to step up and say vile things about the Jews and do vile acts towards them. In Paris, people woke up one morning to find stars of David painted on the homes of Jews. Reminiscent to what was done leading up to and during the Holocaust. Identifying who the Jews were so they could be targeted. That is wicked It's wicked, and it's horrible. Slander usually just doesn't stop at slander. It usually leads towards acts. If people talk about it long enough, guess what? Eventually people act on it. Then the next category we have is obscene talk. Literally, you could translate it, shameful words. Words. Uh, some versions translate it uh, dirty talk or obscene language. The idea is, is there's no coarse joking. All right, I love telling jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Just occasionally. <clears throat> I, I love telling jokes. Um, they need to be honored to the Lord. Any speech. Any speech. All right? Um, even my puns. Our speech needs to be honoring to the Lord. Obscene talk is not. Foul language is not. Curse words are not. Shameful words. We're supposed to get rid of them. Kill your sin. If you've got a problem with your mouth, you need to deal with it. We're called to be wise with our words. Listen, brothers and sisters, our words impart life and they impart death. Here's what it says in Proverbs 18:21: Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits, Proverbs 18, 21. So they can be a healing balm, or they can cut us very deeply, wounding us worse than any jagged sword. And and many of us have had some very painful words said to us. And if we're honest, we've said some pretty painful words to other people. Well, let me be clear. One, when we, when we talk about words, we're supposed to be a blessing to our spouse. Yes? We're supposed to be a blessing. So there's, no, there's no place for any type of, of, of abusive language in marriages at all. Totally not from God at all. There's no place for that. Completely unacceptable. If you are married, you're supposed to build up. You're supposed to build up, not tear down. So don't take that intimate relationship that God has given you and that you've covenanted with another person with and totally turn it on upside down and mar the image of God by speaking ill towards that person. Don't do that. Same with the family. If you're a, 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 a dad or a mom, you need to be very, 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 very careful with the words that you use towards your children very careful, because you can do much, much, much damage with your words. That saying, sticks and stones, you know, will break my bones, names will never hurt me, that's nice, that might help you a little bit, but not true. Okay? We're supposed to be gracious and kind to our kids. And To be truthful, there's no place for it in the church with other brothers and sisters. Listen, if you can't be a believer enough to have someone sin against you and then walk through that and forgive them, then then you're immature in the faith. People are going to sin against you. People in this room are going to sin against you. I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. And I'm going to forgive you. How do I know that? Because I already have many times. Okay? (laughs) No, but for real, I'm going to forgive you. I'm hoping that you're going to forgive me. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. We're going to do stupid things. We're going to say stupid things. We're going to do simple things. We're going to say simple things. I'm going to offend you. I'm going to hurt you. Okay? I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try to put these things away as well, and so should you. But when it happens, let's not just stomp around. Let's not get bitter. Let's not leave the church. Let's deal with it. Let's work through it. Let's not sit on this side because they're sitting on that side. No, let's work through it. Families work through those things. Okay? And yeah, you know, families might have that, you know, uncle that's a little bit odd. But he still gets invited to Christmas. Okay? Like, you still love him. So, no place for it in the church, and then there's there's no place for it in our life. These things are not of God. What we're told in Ezekiel... He says, I have no pleasure, this is the Lord speaking, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. Turn and live. Some versions just say repent, repent and live. Yeah, that's what we're supposed to do. Why? Because it's not supposed to be a part of our lives. So verse 8, back in Colossians chapter 3, put them all away, not just some, but all. And it's interesting, in verse 7, it says, and these you two once walked. A lot of times in, in the Greek, you don't have to use uh, personal pronouns. I, you, he, she, it, we, you all, they. They're just included in the verb. But that means when it is used, we're supposed to take a little bit more careful note. And in verse 7 here, "In these two uh, you once walked, the you is there. It's like, hey, you, yeah, you did that. That was you. You were walking that way. But, but if you go on, it says, when you were living in them, but now you, it's there again. He didn't have to put it there, but he puts it there. But now you, you must put them all away. Okay, so you were walking like that. You, yeah, you, we're all guilty. But guess what? Now you, yes, all of us, we the you, need to put them away. The idea is you two once walked And yes, you too must now continue to put them all away. Get rid of them completely. Why? Because we're supposed to be building the kingdom, and these things don't build the kingdom. We're supposed to be walking in righteousness, and these things don't uh, have us walk in righteousness. They don't serve God's purposes. They don't bring us closer to Christ. They don't bring others closer to Christ. In fact, they do quite the opposite. They tear down the kingdom. You want to be a kingdom builder or a kingdom wrecker? Builder, thank you. So when it comes to sin, we're commanded to put it all away. That's what he says in verse 8. All. Not some of it. Not part of it. Not half of it. Not three quarters. What's, what, what do we call to Be holy as I am holy. This is the command that reverberates throughout scripture. Not be loving as I am loving. He could have said that. He didn't say that. Not be kind as I am kind. Not be gracious as I am gracious. No. When the comparison to God is made, guess what attribute it's made to? His holiness. His holiness. Be holy as I am holy. We are to be like Him in His holiness. Why? Because if we're walking with Him in His holiness, if we're being conformed to that image, then all those other things will be there in abundance. The good and gracious things. The fruit of the Spirit. All the things that are not of God won't be there. They'll be gone. So we're called... To kill our sin. Put it to death. Why? So we can walk in obedience. So that we can live in God's presence. So that we can walk in fellowship with the Lord, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that we can continue to be conformed to the image of his son. We can continue to conform to what God has for us. The God that we claim to know, love, and worship. So we kill Our sin ultimately, so that God may be glorified in our lives. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would convict us of our sin, maybe areas we don't even know that you would have opened our eyes today, pointed it out, made it clear, helped us to see it, and now, Lord, may we forsake it, may we put it away, may we put it to death. Give us more of a hunger and more of a thirst for righteousness. Remove the sinful cravings that we have for fleshly things. May we put them to death. May we live for you. Continue your work, Father, and we ask that you would do it by your grace. Fill us with your spirit even now. Thank you for the strength that you've already provided to do it. that you are quick and gracious to forgive Lord when we repent and you walk with us each step of the way regardless regardless, regardless of what we've done. You are gracious to pick us up each time to love us, to call us back to you so may we walk with a penitent heart. May we walk in the repentance that we proclaim. May we show it to our spouse to our children to our fellow brothers and sisters and may it be seen clearly by you, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Amen.